Welcome to Michael and us. I'm Will Sloan here as always with Luke Savage. Welcome back, everyone. You know, I'm always paying attention to the most important news stories of our time. And look, it's it's been a bit of a hard year for me, but I found that the year is never so hard that when the Oscar nominees are announced, I don't like look at my phone and go, oh, I wonder what got nominated. <laughs> that happened this week, by the way, folks. That's why I raise it. The Oscar nominations were announced this week. You probably didn't even notice. Because who cares anymore? <laughs> Nobody cares. Um, I did look and see what was nominated, and I have no opinion whatsoever about what was nominated. You know, I could say, oh, I like this one, I don't like that one. Who cares? I'd like to fist bump David Sirota for his nomination for Don't Look Up, wouldn't you? <laughs> uh, uh, I I hope he wins. I think that would make a lot of people upset, and I think, I think that'd be very funny. <laughs> you know what I will say, folks? Uh, the movie Drive My Car, which was nominated for Best Picture, is a beautiful film. Highly recommend people check that film out. That's a recommendation from your old friend, Will. That's the only opinion I will have <laughs> about the nominations. But but here's here's what I'll say. Uh, I think within the next 10 years, the Oscars are really going to have to merge with the Emmys. Because who are we kidding anymore? You listen to people talk about succession. You listen to people talk about euphoria. Those are the shows that are capturing the zeitgeist. Not not being the Ricardos. Give me a fucking break. Nobody's watching that shit. Not Belfast. And functionally, movies and TV, uh, like aesthetically, technically, no difference anymore. They're the exact same. The The main aesthetic difference is that TV runs longer and it runs in perpetuity. Right. And that is a major structural difference, right? Which is one of the reasons why the way we watch TV is now changing and why I think there actually might be something to your Emmys, Oscars, merger idea. I mean, we've talked a lot before about how the reputation of so-called prestige TV, you know, it's very overhyped. There's a lot that uh, is achieved through production values alone, or rather is not achieved, but sort of papered over through just huge amounts of money going into things such that everything looks like a movie now. But the fact is, there is a fair amount of really interesting stuff happening on TV. And, you know, when you're doing a series that's, you know, 30 or 40 or 50 or 80 hours long, you actually can do a lot more with it than you can in, you know, most blockbusters. Not to say that, you know, films can't still be very profound. And I would say in general, a good film is still likely to be more profound than a good TV show. But I think the ratios are uh, are evolving before our very eyes. And and, uh, you know, I certainly think the reputation of the of something like the Oscars as sort of, you know, the the Nobel Prize of movies. Yeah, the Nobel <laughs> Prize of movies. You know, that's uh, people's conception of that. The culture's conception of that's probably going to evolve a bit. Like, obviously, I hitched my wagon to cinema a long time ago. I, I boarded that sinking ship a long time ago. <laughs> Uh, and, and one reason is because I prefer the compact storytelling of cinema. Obviously, there are certain examples of TV shows, The Sopranos, Vanderpump Rules, you know, <laughs> these great shows that are told over in novelistic fashion over the course of years. That can be great. But uh, oftentimes I find, you know, this really occurred to me when I watched the first season of Fargo, which is, you know, a very well done show, beautifully acted, much to recommend in it. At around episode seven of the 10 hour long episodes, I was thinking to myself, this has been spinning its wheels for the last three episodes there must be a more compact way to tell this story and then i remembered oh there is it's called fargo the movie which came out in 1996 <laughs> told the story in like 95 minutes or whatever much better this is uh, this is a problem i've noticed in particular with documentary series on on netflix and elsewhere uh there are so many of them that are you know 
four hours too long. You know, you have like 10 episodes mm-hmm. or something and, you're, and you think this could really just be a long documentary. And this thing is, yeah, as you said, been spinning its wheels for, you know, multiple episodes. So it's not to say that the uh, medium of TV is some kind of like perfect carte blanche that gives, you know, artists creative space with no constraints. It absolutely has its own problems as well. And one of them is uh, an excess of kind of tedium and an excess of fat and, and tedium, which a lot of the, a lot of the stuff being made today certainly has. But in terms of prestige, there is functionally no difference between TV and movies anymore. Big stars freely go back and forth between the two mediums. Technically, TV and movies are shot with the same material. There's no like 35 millimeter versus digital distinction anymore. They're shown on the same appliances. Obviously, there's still a theatrical uh, landscape. But for the most part, a lot of movies are released directly to and meant to be seen on a television, oftentimes on the same uh, streaming services that are showing TV. So like truly, truly, there is no distinction. They look the same. So I I mean, at this point, like, who are we kidding? Just merge the two. They're the same thing. You know, believe it or not, folks, uh, I didn't I didn't know we were going to talk about the Oscars. Will came in guns blazing with that right off the top. Well, it's Hollywood's biggest night. I don't know if you've heard. <laughs> but I, I've known you long enough to see your kind of evolution on the Oscars because when I met you I think you were still you know part of your head was still in the camp of like this is actually like very serious and meaningful you know well I think my line at the time would have been obviously it has no artistic merit but it's meaningful in the sense that it influences what sort of movies get made it affects certain careers and so therefore there are things that I will root for and things that I'll root against but I think time has shown especially right now that it really does have no meaning and if anything it just like cheapens the art form i have a very fond memory of watching the oscars with you in the offices of our old student newspaper during one of our magazine production nights you know these were long affairs a lot of waiting around for you know things to be ready for uh review and and one of these nights you know there i have all kinds of memories like this from you know different nights there was one where will and i somehow watched like seven episodes of home improvement in a row but the night i was thinking of was the oscars whatever year it was where i think was it Anne Hathaway and uh, Mr. James Franco, everyone's favorite. They were the co-hosts. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. They were hosting. And it was also, you know, an early Oscars. You know, the Oscars, like everything else, uh, you know, like every big public event has been, you know, fundamentally changed by Twitter. Like there are a million little meta discourses branching off from every screen cap that people are mm-hmm. tweeting. And this was kind of an early case of like a Twitter Oscars. But I, I remember that they did a particularly shitty job hosting and that Franco looked incredibly <laughs> stoned the whole time and that hundreds of people on Twitter were making just the same joke all at the same time. I remember that Oscar cast was either 2010 or 2011. Uh, it was the year the King's Speech won, which is the kind of useless information I carry in my head. So it was around that time when Twitter was starting to turn into a medium. That's right. So everybody was telling, I remember this exact same joke. And it wasn't one of those things where people were all copying each other, although, you know, that does happen on Twitter. I think it was just that everyone had the same thought at the same time because it was true. And, you know, everyone was riffing on, you know, whatever number of Academy Award it was, how Franco and Hathaway were ranked that number in the like all time list of best (laughs) hosts. (laughs) 
not to belabor this, but was that the same year that there was the photo that broke the internet? You know, that photo. No, where- that, that was a couple of years later on an Ellen DeGeneres hosted Oscar cast. She was uh, thinking of viral moments to do. So she was the one who took that photo. That that shows you just how shortly Twitter became the factor in the Oscars. Um, and I, I think I think positively overall, I mean, again, not that it matters. <laughs> yeah, but- pos- positively overall, because now we can hold them accountable. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but but actually, kind of, because back in the day, you know, Billy Crystal would host, and then the New York Times and Entertainment Weekly would publish their review that was like, he's really funny. And now, Billy Crystal is finding out midway through the Oscars, because people are telling him that people on Twitter think he's not funny. <laughs> he's got to adapt to that in real time while he's hosting the show. I mean, that's that's an amazing thing. Well, you heard it here first, folks. Uh, Twitter is a populist medium. We're fighting back against the Oscar elites. <laughs> We're fighting back against Big Billy Crystal. <laughs> he just turned 40, but he digs a team, loves to shower, never gets clean. The guy next door is a closeted Marine. Uh, that's why this beauty is a champ. Well, before we get to the meat of today's show, uh, which is a film that I thoroughly enjoyed, I would be remiss not to acknowledge uh, recent developments in the so-called trucker protests that are happening in Canada, alternatively known as the Freedom Convoy. Will and I talked about these extensively on our last Patreon app, so you know, if you want our thoughts on it, in detail, you can uh, you can check that out, patreon.com slash Michael and us. But there was one particular development today that I think is uh, is worthy of note. As people who've been following this story uh, in Canada especially will know, the protests have presented uh, quite a dilemma for institutional conservatism in Canada, for the conservative establishment, for the conservative party. Uh, one of the uh, successes, I suppose you can say, of the protests, you know, they're obviously, you know, these are protests against vaccine mandates and other things, and they're, they're are you know, not going to succeed in that regard in, in bringing about any kind of change to public policy. But one success they can definitely count is cr- at least, uh, you know, creating the conditions which have led to the ouster of Aaron O'Toole, the leader of the opposition, the leader of the Conservative Party, who briefly during the last federal election in the fall uh, looked like he might become prime minister. Now, O'Toole is the kind of weather vane politician that is regularly created by the Conservative Party of Canada. He uh, ran for the Tory leadership on the slogan True Blue, which, you know, is how you win the Tory leadership in Canada, typically. There was a strong challenge from this guy, Peter McKay, who was former cabinet minister as well in the Stephen Harper government, uh, which was in power between 2006 and 2015. McKay was running as kind of like an open, you know, moderate. Uh, He was running as a pro-choice, tolerant conservative. We need to, you know, we need to modernize that kind of stuff. You know, the kind of conservative that liberal get extremely excited about. Now, I don't have time here to get into why Peter McKay sucks too, but would you believe it or not that, you know, the conservative base, uh, that's not where they were at. So Aaron O'Toole won. And as has happened a number of times um, at various levels, this happened with the Conservative Party in Ontario as well. A leader who ran pretty explicitly on the right immediately started talking about, uh, well, actually, you know, maybe maybe 
carbon taxes are a good thing. You know, carbon taxes having been something the Harper government demonized, you know, extensively. Uh, Aaron O'Toole during the election tried to do this kind of like conservative workerism. Uh, he started talking about like the working class and stuff. Uh, he was talking about, you know, worker representation on boards. He was talking about mental health. And again, would you believe that this is not where the base of the conservative party is at? And, you know, O'Toole really blew the election. There were some really uh, stupid blunders, you know, that allowed the liberals to run the kind of culture war narrative that has in the past in, in a great many elections been kryptonite against the Tories. As soon as they get tarnished with the Trump label, the Trumpian label or anything like it, their goose is kind of cooked when it comes to winning over some of the ridings that they need to win in order to form a government. So O'Toole allowed this stupid thing into the Tory platform about how they were going to end a bunch of bans on assault weapons, uh, which, you know, just the kind of thing that, you know, I don't know, I don't know what the backstory there was. Conservative delegates at a conference or, you know, at a convention got that, you know, slipped into the policy book. It made its way into the platform. Totally stupid. You know, they blew the election. So O'Toole's been embattled ever since the election. The Tory party is absolutely ruthless. I think admirably so in a way in, you know, ditching its leaders. They've ditched now uh, two of their leaders, O'Toole and then before him, Andrew Scheer, after only one election, even though both of them actually defeated the liberals in the national popular vote, um, but failed to win more seats. So these protests, which have, you know, among other things, led to this, you know, eight day or nine day occupation of downtown Ottawa now, very disruptive uh, in the heart of the nation's capital. Many members of the Conservative Caucus openly supportive of these things. And O'Toole's hand was just forced, you know, he'd kind of tried to shy away from them. He'd equivocated about all kinds of things. Uh, They forced him out. It looks like now the direction in the Conservative Party could be or is likely to be a more rightward one. The leading candidate to replace O'Toole is a guy by the name of Pierre Polyev, who is an Ottawa area MP. He's uh, very popular on social media. He's got a big YouTube channel. He makes content there. He's got a bit of a campus conservative edgelord vibe. But he is good in, in a way at doing a kind of like fake class politics from the right, you know, strongly aligned himself with these protests. Anyway, this is all a long uh, preamble to the developments of today, which I think are very interesting. Earlier this morning, Candace Bergen, who is the interim leader of the Conservative Party, she's an MP from Manitoba, gave a statement in the House of Commons in which uh, she called for the protest to end. A little later, uh, Doug Ford, the Conservative Premier of Ontario, released a statement saying that his Attorney General has brought an application to the Superior Court of Justice, which aims to prohibit, quote, any person from disposing of or otherwise dealing with in any manner whatsoever any and all monetary donations made through the Freedom Convoy 2022 and adopt a trucker campaign pages on the Give, Send, Go online platform. So this is a pretty remarkable about face from the Conservative establishment in Canada, which has it, you know, at very least tried to equivocate about uh, what's going on, uh, and in some cases, you know, has kind of openly um, aligned itself with the protests. Now, you may be wondering why this happened. Well, another development in these protests is that they've started to disrupt commercial activity in a very serious way. The Ambassador Bridge was blocked a few days ago. This is the bridge between Windsor and Detroit. It's a major, major border crossing. So it's a commercial choke point between Canada and the United States, which are bound together in a trade 
trade relationship. Back when I was in university, the figure was a billion dollars of cross-border trade every day. I'm sure it's a lot larger than that. There was also a port in Manitoba uh, that's been blocked. And there's one other uh, significant border crossing, I can't remember which, that's been blocked as well. Now, Candace Bergen, in her statement in the House this morning, specifically said, addressing the protests, that, hey, you know, the point of these was to help workers. And, and by disrupting the supply chain, you're actually hurting farmers, you're hurting workers, you're hurting consumers, etc. I think this is very instructive. I mean, it, uh, you know, there are a number of possible explanations for this. I suspect the most obvious one is that Bay Street has been on the phone with the Conservative Party and its leadership and the uh, Premier of Ontario's office as well. And they've said, hey, can you cut it out? But regardless, I think there's a, a lesson here, which is that conservatism, as much as it likes to pose, particularly these days, as much as conservatives like to pose as populists and scrappy class warriors, and, you know, they've certainly tried to do uh, both of those things in relation to these protests, their ultimate allegiance is to markets and to capital. And the moment that these protests started disrupting commercial activity of any kind, I mean, within 24 hours, Premier of Ontario's office is, is working to try to cut off the funding to this thing. And the interim leader of the Conservative Party, who's previously been photographed with a Make America Great Again t-shirt, is calling on the protest to end. I'm probably preaching to the choir on this show, but uh, I think it's a pretty instructive moment. Can I just ask you to put on your uh, pundit hat for a sec? Always. Because this feels like kind of an unstoppable force meets immovable object thing. The trucker convoy, which is broadly unpopular in Canada, nevertheless taps into certain popular sentiments. It feels like the kind of sentiments that a savvy Tory party could very easily marshal into a commanding victory. But do you think it's possible for them to actually do that? without running up against the forces you're describing? Well, I think it's very, very difficult. Um, the Tory party has not been able to resolve any of its contradictions since uh, Stephen Harper's defeat in 2015. I think building any kind of majority coalition as a leader of the modern conservative party is very, very difficult. If you're an American listener to the show or someone listening abroad, you may not know that before the 1990s, Canada had a, a different conservative party. It had uh, something that called itself the progressive conservative Conservative Party. And, you know, while that shouldn't be idealized too much, there's no denying that in the 1990s and afterwards, there was a kind of new right current, which uh, initially expressed itself through something called the Reform Party, later something that, uh, called the Canadian Alliance. The, the old PC party basically split into three chunks. There was, in the 90s, the old Conservative Party, the PCs. There was the Reform Party, which was this, you know, new kind of much more Americanized party that was uh, heavily rooted in Western Canada. Alberta was really its uh, spiritual and, and ideological heartland. Uh, and then also the Bloc Québécois, because uh, the Mulroney government, PC government of the 1980s, had had a lot of representation in Quebec. And there had been sort of soft Quebec nationalists who'd been part of that coalition who split off and formed uh, the Bloc Québécois, which is this, you know, kind of federal uh, Quebec sovereigntist party in Canada's parliament. By the early 2000s, Stephen Harper, who was then the leader of the Canadian Alliance and had a background in the Reform Party and also just in the kind of Canadian conservative movement more generally, uh, was able to kind of affect a merger of the Canadian Alliance and the Progressive Conservative Party, creating what is now the Conservative Party of Canada. 
And in 2006, he was able to win a small minority government. Uh, He won a a slightly larger minority government in 2008. And then in 2011, he won a majority government largely by defeating the liberals in the suburban uh, greater Toronto area, which is a very seat rich area. So Stephen Harper is the only leader of the modern Conservative Party, you know, Conservative Party in its present form to win an election. And even he only won one election with a majority government. I think there are a number of reasons for this, uh, why he was able to do it. But I really think one of them was that he was a figure who came from the right. Uh, He had a buy-in with the conservative movement and with conservative activists. And so when he practiced absolutely rigid message control um, and kind of centralized decision making, which he did, that was kind of his hallmark, this very authoritarian kind of style, he was kind of able to get away with it. And it was for that reason that I think he was able to put together after a few tries an offering, which in 2011 was able with the liberal collapse uh, to create a majority coalition. There have now been uh, two Tory leaders who've tried to repeat that formula and both of them have failed. There's really no denying that conservatism, as it is known to kind of rank and file activists in the Tory party and also kind of broader small C conservative people, you know, some of whom have joined the self-described freedom convoy. It is a minority proposition in this country. And so if you're a Tory leader, you have to add some constituencies to it that are not signed up for bread and butter conservative causes. Perhaps it's possible to do that. A populist conservatism, you know, a really sort of angry, anti-elite conservatism, something that's kind of fully Trumpian in nature, uh, that hasn't really been tried. How about the particular alchemy that Doug Ford was able to accomplish in Ontario last time, where it was sort of, I guess, implicitly Trumpian, but then also implicitly not Trumpian? It was it was so vague that it could be sort of whatever you wanted it to be, coupled with the incredible unpopularity of Kathleen Wynne's government at that moment. Right. I mean, I think that the most significant thing with Doug Ford's victory in Ontario, well, there were there were two things. So one was that the Liberals had been in power in Ontario since 2003, and it's just very hard to sustain a governing regime for much longer than that in the 21st century. So there's a lot of fatigue uh, with the government. Doug Ford, I think, though, also was somebody who came from the right, and he was able to bring over a certain number of kind of uh, right-leaning constituencies, even though the campaign that he was running was just this totally vague, you know, there was this slogan for the people, you know, he had this buck a beer idea, just, you know, pure, like, dull as ditchwater suburban identity politics, that kind of stuff. But, you know, this wasn't a slash and burn hard right campaign. That was one thing. The other thing I would say about that campaign, which was in 2018, is that the NDP was going to win a week before Election Day. And the right wing media, you know, started, I mean, quite literally putting Nazi imagery and stuff on the front page, you know, next to NDP politicians and things like that. The NDP was not able to blunt those attacks. And as a result, its momentum was uh, was stalled. But I'm not sure those conditions are really, uh, I don't know if you can scale those up uh, to national politics. And I also think if the conservative strategy for forming government is just going to be to wait until the liberals have been in power for 20 years, you know, they're probably not going to be very good about advancing their objectives. One final point I will make here in response to your question, because I know we have a huge number of American listeners, is that it's important to remember, you know, there, there is a lesson actually in all of this for American politics, which is that, you know, Trumpism was never a majority proposition either. If you look at the percentage of the vote that Trump got in both of his elections, 2016 and 2020, you know, it's comparable to like what Mitt Romney got in 2012 or something like that. He did add more votes. Um, and in some cases, he won over constituencies that the Republicans 
Republican Party has struggled with. You know, he made gains there. But Donald Trump lost the popular vote both times. And if it wasn't for the Electoral College and other institutions that are designed to uh, entrench minority rule, what we think of as Trumpism would really be a, a totally different beast. You know, the Republican Party has won the popular vote in the presidential level uh, once since 1988, by my count, in 2004. It's lost it in every other instance. So the real lesson in all this, I think, is that conservatism is very much a minority proposition these days. And that's one of the reasons why the American right in particular is so concerned with protecting and defending these institutions of minority rule, because it's their only conceivable path forward. Is war unforeseeable, Minister? Look. For the plane in the fog, um, the mountain is un unforeseeable, but then it is suddenly very real and unforeseeable. Thank you so much. He did not say unforeseeable. You may have heard him say that, but he did not say that. I don't think war is unforeseeable. What is it then? I don't know. Foreseeable? No. No! Wars do sometimes work. <laughs> you know I'm against the war. Where is the intelligence? There is an informant. Iceman. Iceman. Ice I don't name them. That is your career. We request carbonated and non-carbonated waters. You know there are all kids in Washington. It's like Bugs in Malone, but with real guns. You're my Kunta can you go and get your laptop. You're going to use them as a meat puppet. I'm meat. A prime cut. Whip it. Whip it? Whip what? what does that mean? Well, I think it, I think it just means... Actually, I don't, know. I don't know what it means. The movie on this episode is another super delegate pick. Typically, we do these on the Patreon episodes, but uh, things have been a little uh, crazy lately, so we decided to do it on the free episode. And uh, the other reason is because we actually had two super delegate winners. We had an unprecedented tie. So we're going to do both movies. We're going to do this one, and we're going to do the Culture War classic, The People vs. Larry Flint, sometime next week. So you can look forward to that. By the way, you know what else I would love to talk about at some point is Private Parts, the Howard Stern movie, which is another relic of that particular era. Uh, I think I think that would be really fun to talk about. Actually, I have, a, I have okay, I have a ton of '90s culture war things I would love to talk about. I just watched a documentary. This is such a tangent. I just watched a documentary about this '90s shock rocker called El Duce, called the El Duce Tapes. I want you to see this documentary, Luke. It would be perfect for us. Anyway, In the Loop by Armando Iannucci, one of the great satirists of our time, and uh, a thoroughly enjoyable movie. Uh, the movie that Pete Buttigieg's campaign advisor, Liz Smith, watches and says, I'm like Malcolm Tucker. You can just tell. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. This movie probably is a Rorschach test for what kind of political brain you have. I have to say, you know, I, I've, I'm familiar with uh, the thick of it. You know, I've seen a number of episodes. I really haven't given it, you know, I haven't been immersed in it quite as much as I should. I know you're familiar with Alan Partridge as well, which is another Armando Iannucci brainchild. Yeah, he's got his fingerprints and all kinds of really good stuff. You know, Death of Stalin is fantastic as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, who could forget Veep, which is a much admired show that he made in America. Another blind spot of mine, uh, as was this movie. Um, I'd never seen it. This is one of the most enjoyable movies you know, for me anyway, that we've watched on the podcast for quite some time. It touches on a number of my interests. I thought it was incredibly funny. Uh, I think it is incredibly effective as satire. And I also think it's incredibly realistic, even though, you know, so much about it is exaggerated. Having worked in political communications having thought a great deal about how, you know, states work and how large institutions and large bureaucracies work. 
I think the thick of it captures all those things particularly well, and in this case, captures them very well in kind of depicting the institutional conditions leading up to the invasion of Iraq in 2003. Now, before we talk about the film itself, I want to set the stage a little bit. I'll assume that people listening are broadly familiar with the show and kind of, you know, the the mockumentary style that it adopts. I see it as part of a kind of broader tradition in British political satire, going back to uh, Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister. If you've ever seen those shows or perhaps watched them with your parents or grandparents, you'll remember that the main character uh, in that show, Hacker, his political party, his political affiliation is never identified. And those series are uh, concerned overwhelmingly with kind of the inner workings of state bureaucracy. In Yes Minister, Hacker heads something that's just called the Ministry of Administrative Affairs. So it's literally a kind of department for paperwork. Now, that series is brilliant because if you're a Marxist or a leftist and you watch it, uh, it's clearly about how privately educated people from a handful of schools who are unelected work as civil servants and basically obstruct democratic governance. And if you're a Thatcherite and you watch it, it's about how the state is pointless and kind of self-replicating and self-maximizing. And uh, we could we could certainly do with less of it. But the most important innovation in that show is that it manages to depict uh, without ever uh, ascribing it an ideological label. The thick of it does the same thing. We never learn who these politicians are actually working for, what political affiliation they have, but it's abundantly clear that the show and this movie are satires of the new labor era. Now, a lot of the major characters are comms people. You know, they're pencil pushers. They're people who work in offices. They haven't been elected. In some cases, they're political appointees, but often, you know, they're simply bureaucrats. And I think this is a really important hallmark of the new labor era. They history of the Labour Party going back to its founding, I mean, even when it was in government in the 60s and 70s, you can go back through the records and there's talk of endless cabinet meetings, endless deliberation, huge battles at the party conferences, you know, ministers uh, in Labour governments, you know, having agendas that differed from their colleagues and having to kind of fight them out in cabinet and, you know, take them back to their constituencies and things like that. Now, by the 1990s, this has really gone away. And what happened was a kind of total triumph of spin and communications, where unelected people, unelected spin doctors, who were just absolutely obsessed, you know, with the headlines in a few newspapers every day, and what Rupert Murdoch thought of their government, and what the polls were saying at a given time, uh, they were often the decision makers. You know, a lot of individual cabinet ministers really had very little authority. And, you know, one of the things that happens throughout this movie is that the cabinet minister character is just constantly taking orders. You know, he's subordinate to Malcolm Tucker, who's the prime minister's director of communications. One other thing I'll say here to set the stage uh, that's important background as well is that the kinds of people who were part of New Labour, the New Labour caucus and New Labour cabinets were very different from the kinds of people who'd been MPs in uh, the old Labour era or who'd been in cabinet. I brought up a study that's a favorite of mine. I cite it over and over again. It's an analysis by the Smith Institute, which shows the evolution of, uh, you know, the backgrounds of MPs in various parties. And it has some incredible facts about the Labour Party. So in 1979, 40% of Labour MPs had a background in some kind of manual occupation. By uh, kind of circa the early 2010s, the figure was only 7%. And by circa 2010, uh, about 30% of Labour MPs entered parties 
parliament by working as political staffers, and 18% came out of business or finance. 10% more began their careers in the media, and 12% began their careers in law, leaving only 15% that had roots in the trade unions that actually founded what calls itself the Labour Party. There are other things about the study that are worthy of note as well. 33% of MPs attended private schools. The national average in Britain of private school attendeeship is only 7%. And one in four MPs total had a background in politics. So a full quarter of people serving at Westminster came out of politics. New Labour was very much a kind of vanguard of this trend and a vehicle for it. It really was the transformation of a political party that had at least tried to be uh, at various points in its history, uh, the extension of an organic working class movement. Uh, It was really transformed into something that was, for many people, just a career path for upper middle class professionals who had no background in any kind of work outside a handful of white collar professions. And so all of that is an important context for kind of the triumph of spin, an obsession with what's going on in the press and also a total unmooring from any kind of broader ideological objective. You know, in this show and in this movie, it's never really clear what anyone's convictions are, or at least, you know, the characters who who have convictions are the exceptions. All of that, I think, is why the show and the movie are such incredible satire. Well, that's all well and good. I have some table setting of my own. This is a review by my favorite critic of all time, Ed Koch, the former mayor of New York City. What? Which he wrote for The Atlantic. Sorry, uh, uh, this is not going to lead to anything important, but I just wanted to share it. Uh, Ed Koch, I I found out today. I knew that he had a YouTube movie review show before he died, but he was also for a time a film critic for The Atlantic. He has a Rotten Tomatoes page. <laughs> he he reviewed dozens of films for The Atlantic magazine. He didn't care for this film. The headline of the review was out of the loop. He said, this alleged satire, which received four-star treatment from other critics, left me with a ho-hum and sorry feeling that I had wasted an evening seeing it. The humor is predicated on American and British diplomats seeking to embarrass one another. The Americans seek to plan a war against a Middle Eastern country, while the British want to stop them. Which, first of all, I'll just interject and say that's not really an accurate plot synopsis. (laughs) It's not even Uh, close to what the movie's about. uh, Later on, he writes... Most of the Brits have heavy accents, and more than half of what they said was unintelligible to me. <laughs> Although there are some funny... <laughs> okay, okay, stop it right there. This uh, this anti-Celtic prejudice will not stand from Ed Koch. <laughs> Although there are some funny gags, overall I did not find the script humorous, due to the fact that most of the humor is predicated on everyone talking obscenely and constantly using the F word. <laughs> It may be that hearing distinguished characters continuously express themselves with a stream of obscenities is funny in Britain. Queen Victoria, however, would have said, we are not amused. Neither was I. Actually, I I shouldn't waste so much time on this, but it's really funny. Although the film has been playing for several weeks, I was surprised that there were fewer than 20 people in the audience when I saw it at the 7.30 p.m. on a Friday evening at the IFC Waverly in New York. In this case... The audience was more astute than the critics. So that's uh, that's uh, Mayor Ed Koch, film critic for The Atlantic, what he had to say about, about it. I was actually a little, I was a little, this review is hilarious, but I was a little bit disappointed by it just because I thought that he would he would have more to say about the ideology of the film. I gotta, I gotta the, interject the, to say I'm disappointed. Ed Koch is nothing sacred? <laughs> is nobody pure? Well, look, this has nothing to do with the movie, but since he's never come up on the show before, can I tell you the uh, the, the one occasion that, that I regularly think about Ed Koch? Oh, uh, please. <laughs> Again, 
again, has nothing to do with the movie, but there is a moment, if you've ever heard Simon and Garfunkel's concert in Central Park from 1980, uh, I've got it on vinyl, and there's a moment where Paul Simon is talking to the crowd, and he's, you know, thanking various people. He's like, I want to thank the police department and the fire department. And then you can tell he's a little nervous to say the next thing, because he kind of pauses, and then he just says, and Ed Koch... And then there's just booze, like Central Park just booze, <laughs> just booze the mayor of New York City. And I got to say, uh, that's really the only time I think about uh, Ed Koch is when I listen to Simon and Garfunkel concert in Central Park. Well, I think of him whenever I watch his YouTube movie review show, Mayor at the Movies, which is still online in the dustier corners of the internet and is is very funny. It, it's so funny to watch him wrestle with the cinema of like Michael Haneke and Abbas Kiarostami. I'm Ed Koch and I'm uh, back to uh, reviewing and the movie that I will review for you now is The Tree of Life. It got unanimous uh, rave reviews, and people uh, were standing in line uh, to uh, watch it. I saw it several weeks after the uh, opening. It uh, didn't do well with me, although you have to be truthful about it. Uh, the audience at the end of the show um, applauded. I thought to myself, am I the little Japanese boy who said, but the king is naked? I am astonished that I'm just learning this exists. I can't believe you've never brought this up before. We should do a whole episode that's a deep dive uh, into Ed <laughs> movie review channel. That's the kind of content that you're not going to get anywhere else, folks. And you're going you're gonna to get it right here on the Michael and Us podcast. Anyway, um, the inciting incident of the film is uh, the Minister for International Development in the UK, Simon Foster, played by Tom Hollander, misspeaks in an interview with the BBC. For the preceding weeks and months, there's been a drumbeat to war in both the UK and the US. It's clearly an Iraq war type situation. And Simon Foster says that war is unforeseeable. <laughs> it's like both vague, but also, you know, not vague. It also speaks to the, the target of the satire in this movie, and also how stupid like new labor spin culture is. Because of course, if you say something's unforeseeable, you know, he this is a cabinet minister. It's a cabinet minister who has a, a portfolio concern concerned with foreign affairs and unforeseeable is like a description of like your abstract perceptions about something it's like the problem obviously for the government is that you know they've decided a war is going to happen regardless but of course they can't say that because there has to be this whole kind of like fake deliberation that happens beforehand there's initially some hope that this comment will fly under the radar but it doesn't he earns the ire of the director of communications for the government malcolm tucker played by the great Peter Capaldi, uh, who gives a, a, a marvelous foul-mouthed performance. I looked up a list of uh, some of Malcolm Tucker's greatest insults, and I guess, like former New York City Mayor Ed Koch, the person who compiled them, found it necessary to include a, a content warning, uh, contains strong language... <laughs> Uh, and in Tucker's words, violent sexual imagery. But yeah, Malcolm Tucker is a character who says things like, who describes people with insults like, he's as useless as a marzipan dildo. I've never seen anyone look so fucking ugly with just one head. He says, I wouldn't fucking piss on you if I were fucking allergic to piss, right? He says, I can't remember if it's in this movie or elsewhere. He says, you can't have a prime minister called Dan. People called Dan working fucking fitness centers and listen to West Coast jazz. I'd love to stop and chat but I'd rather have type 2 diabetes. 
Absolutely amazing character. One of the most iconic TV characters. Absolutely love him. Loved his performance in this movie. From here, we encounter a dizzying number of characters on both sides of the Atlantic, as both Simon Foster and Malcolm Tucker, as well as Simon's uh, new assistant, Toby Wright, played by Chris Addison, uh, find themselves in the war machine. There are characters in the U.S. government who oppose war, like Karen Clark, the U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for Diplomacy, as well as James Gandolfini as the Lieutenant General, somebody who doesn't believe they have the forces to win, someone who strongly believes that you should only send forces overseas if absolutely necessary. I absolutely love, I mean, James Gandolfini goes without saying is the absolute goat. But something I love about his character is that he's, you know, one of the protagonists of the film, although in the end, you know, he has less of a spine than it seems. But something I love about the character is they decided to kind of make him a protagonist. But then a major detail of his character is that he's also homophobic because, like, he's still a fucking military guy. Like, he keeps quoting Gore Vidal and then he's told by someone that Gore Vidal was gay and he's like, oh shit, I better stop saying that. So I feel like he's kind of a realistic depiction of a guy from that generation of the U.S. military who might have enough sense to be like, okay, well, the intelligence that we're getting for this is obviously bullshit. War is not a good idea. Uh, you know, maybe he had some time in active service and he actually does feel like war as a last resort and you know the newspaper columnists and other snowflakes who are cheering for it because you know they want an exciting spectacle are wrong about it but you know at the end of the day he's still a military guy and he's got shitty opinions and a shitty outlook there's also a minor character played by steve coogan giving a great performance as a northerner who keeps causing trouble in his office because of the wall that's collapsing in his garden okay i absolutely love the steve coogan (laughs) subplot for for multiple reasons one of them because i used to work in the constituency office of a member of parliament. (laughs) And I absolutely had conversations like this. You know, you work in a constituency office, you see the whole spectrum, right? In a lot of cases, I was talking to people mistreated by our immigration system, right? Tons of cases where, let's say there's someone who moved to Canada uh, from the Philippines 30 years ago, and they haven't seen their sister in decades. And they're saying, well, you know, my sister saved up enough money, she wants to come over, and citizenship immigration keeps denying her a visa. And it's costing us money every time to apply. Why is this happening? And, you know, sometimes you could actually be of genuine help with something like that. You know, big bureaucracies treat people unfairly, especially when they're from particular countries rather than others. Same with, uh, you know, helping people access social benefits, that kind of thing. But in many cases, right, the people that come in, you know, it's like there's an open door policy. And it's like in any any place where there's an open door policy, you know, you meet people, you know, the people come in with their petitions about how, like, we need to dismantle the CN Tower because uh, it's actually interfering with their antenna signal or uh, (laughs) microwaves are melting our brains. And, you know, will the MP present my petition in the House of Commons or people that are just having some like stupid dispute with their neighbors or something and they talk for 20 minutes and you're like, how is this like an issue? of federal jurisdiction. I'm not really clear how I can help mediate this dispute about your hedge, madam. And I'm sure a lot of them kind of want to stick it to the man in some way. Like, they'll be like the character in this movie where it's like, right, this is exactly how you treat your constituents. <laughs> you fob me off on someone else. That's right. And and something else I love about this whole Steve Coogan plot is that it's a reminder of something else about the new labor era. I think he's from somewhere in Northumberland. I think that's where we find out Simon's constituency is. And I think it's probably reasonable to conclude, you know, he's uh, probably had the typical late new labor background, you know, probably, you know, special advisor to MP to cabinet minister kind of pipeline, probably went to Oxbridge probably took that degree. Uh, the acronym escapes me now that like literally all of them take. 
you know, he represents some constituency that's probably, you know, an old labor constituency that he's been parachuted into. Where did Tony Blair represent Sedgefield, an old, an old coal mining community? Did he have anything to do with it? Absolutely not. And it's very funny that amidst the total kind of authoritarian centralization of government, the total neutering of democracy inside the Labour Party and outside of it, all these people still had to kind of maintain like the illusion that they were representing like communities in the north of England and other places. Like these people that had probably like barely been outside of London, like probably been to continental Europe more times than they'd been like north of London, still had to go back, you know, they had to be with the plebs on a train and go back to their, you know, some constituency and like go to a kind of like tired office and like meet with people that had actual problems. And like what's amazing about, you know, Simon, the ministerial character in this movie is like he ostensibly has this like big job, right? He's the minister for international affairs, but he's just like a total nobody. He's subordinate to the communication staff. Malcolm Tucker, who no one elected, just tells him what to do. He doesn't seem to have any control over his portfolio or what his department says. He's an actor on a stage and he's a completely powerless person. Like right at the beginning, one of the things that happens is that his new assistant, the guy played by Chris Addison, boasts to him like, hey, I got you into this uh, this foreign office meeting like because his girlfriend works in the foreign office and is like able to add him to the schedule, this foreign office meeting where they're talking about the war and it's like this guy is the minister for international affairs and at this this big international meeting with these all these like important american officials you know he just has like this tiny like chair in the corner of the room absolutely nobody (laughs) gives a shit what he has to say he has no autonomy and all the people negotiating like none of them seem to be elected people at all they're not cabinet ministers they're not members of parliament they're not accountable to any constituency except like whatever large bureaucracy sent them. And even they, it seems, are pretty much powerless because they're all just like going over reports and stuff that are being handed over from above. And in these meetings, like no one involved is really a big decision maker, even when they have like a fancy title. And the British Minister of International Affairs is at the bottom of that pyramid and, you know, still has to go back and listen to like Steve Coogan complain about like a wall and talk about how, you know, there's too much foreign signage in our local shops. And so we follow Simon Foster during this uh, week or so of his life where he ping pongs between various factions co-opted at times by the anti-war forces who think he may be useful to sway popular support against the war and then at the end of the film discarded unceremoniously when it becomes clear that war is inevitable replaced by just another minister overnight i actually have another review that i want to read from Uh, the critical reception to this was overwhelmingly positive and this review was no exception it's from the toronto star and i'm not raising it to make fun of it but the article is kind of interesting you you mentioned that uh, and i think it's true that the movie is to some extent this rorschach test And I think this review from the Toronto Star really comes at a particular moment in time. It's not a review that I think would have been written five years before or five years after. The film, while often very funny, is so relentlessly savage it could destroy whatever shred of respect you may still retain for politicians and that flogged horse called democracy. Watching these knuckleheads and opportunists could leave you wondering if maybe the warlords, theocrats, and thugs who rule regressive regimes aren't on to something. What they lack in subtlety, they make up for in expediency. And uh, uh, later on he writes... 
curiously for a British production, the Americans come off looking smarter and sharper than their London counterparts, but everyone seems motivated more by self-advancement and hide protection than by any real dedication to truth, justice, and the democratic way. In the Loop could really bum you out, even as it makes you roar with laughter. Will Obama's change you can believe in end this way too? I mean, so that that's obviously a funny passage in retrospect. <laughs> that's very funny to hear now, yeah. He gives it three stars out of four, and in that rating I sense a certain uh, reticence towards the movie. It's a certain wish that the movie could have, like, let the institutions and the people who run them off a little bit easier. But then despite this review, I also know that this movie is a great favorite of many people who actually work in politics. Um, and was was broadly accepted across the political spectrum as a scathing satire. This review that I just quoted from seems to me like a bit of an outlier in the critical reception, the fact that it seemed a, a little bit wounded by the scabrousness of the satire. Most other people, including people who work in politics, seem to enjoy the cynicism of it. Weirdly enough, probably for some of the same reasons that they enjoy something like Politicon or something, where obviously this movie's a lot, a much better force in the world than Politicon is. But a lot of people who watch both things are like, oh, we're, we're an insider. We see how it really works. Well, I mean, the thing about cynicism cynicism in politics, right, is that, uh, you you know, you can be a cynic, but you can take cynicism in very different directions. I think one of the things you find Mm -hmm. from some of the most cynical people in politics, you know, the people who sign up to just like do whatever, whether that's like in the lead up to the Iraq war, or whether it's in a kind of more like quotidian sense, just working in a big bureaucracy, knowing that you're working, you know, you're you're kind of like a tertiary appendage of some political project that's like not really serious about changing anything, whatever. You know, there are people who fully acknowledge that, but they still think, great, at least I'm here. At least I'm in the nice building where the important people hang out. <laughs> I get to hang out with politicians. I get to hang out with business leaders. I get to talk to stakeholders. Uh, I get to go to big international meetings where people wear flag pins and that kind of thing. You know, I met all kinds of people uh, in my time working in politics, but I definitely met people like that. There are all kinds of people who... You know, if you really press them, they kind of know that, like, this isn't what it's purporting to be. But they really just don't care. I mean, uh, one thing I remember from my time working in a certain legislature was that, you know, after work each day, various uh, lobbies and interest groups would host these kind of, like, dues in the building or nearby that just anyone, you know, like, MPs, cabinet ministers, political staffers could attend. I should clarify that I never actually worked in government. I was in opposition, obviously. But, you know, a lot of these right are just like totally cynical when you kind of take a step back you know it's just like okay you could go get free drinks and it's just like some lobby that wants favors from the government or you know wants certain things to be regulated or not regulated as the case may be or whatever and you know a lot of people just treated them as like okay i'll have a drink after work and you know i know this is stupid but that's not how that's not how everybody treated them a lot of people just liked being in these rooms where there were these important people and you know they were clearly thinking to themselves i've made it. And it didn't matter that they weren't doing anything particularly useful. There are people that really just, they know that there's an establishment, they know that there's kind of like an insider culture, and they don't really care to what ends, you know, what ends it pursues. Uh, They just want to be a part of it. That was very much part of the context for new laborism and all the kind of like principle-free upper middle class strivers that it attracted. But of course, cynicism in politics can also take you in a very different direction, right? Like you can have the same premise, which is that, okay, these institutions 
institutions are not what they purport to be. They're not what they contend to be. And you can come to a completely opposite conclusion. You can say, well, if these institutions don't actually represent people in a democratic way, what would it take for them to do so? What would it take to not have a political establishment that behaved this way? And so I think there's a constructive uh, use of political cynicism as well. And I think, you know, if you're a, if you're a self-conscious insider and you watch this movie and think, haha, it's funny, we can all laugh at ourselves, you know, there's something about it that you're, that you're clearly missing. Because of course, at the end of the day, in, in the loop, all of it's taking place in, you know, meeting rooms in, in London and in DC. But what's ultimately at stake is whether Britain and the United States are going to go to war. So the stakes are pretty high. And what I think the movie captures so well, and, you know, this is the part of the satire that I think, you know, like if you're a hack political staffer and you watch this movie and you enjoy it, you know, you're clearly you're clearly missing this part of the satire. You know, what the movie captures is the way that big institutions and, you know, big bureaucracies often work on the inside and how they worked in particular in the lead up to the Iraq war. Decision making uh, in this movie appears to be so diffuse that it's hard to identify the actual source. There are these big meetings with all these people with various, you know, portfolios that belong to various departments, but none of them seems empowered to make any kind of actual decisions. You know, they're having these meta conversations. There's one scene where they have a debate about, you know, is this the war committee or is this the future planning committee? And of course, everybody knows that it's the war committee because the war is a foregone conclusion. It's going to happen. But they can't actually call it that because there has to be this whole kind of liturgy of deliberation. And all of it, the committee meetings, the press conferences, the bureaucratic discussions. It's all window dressing for a decision that's going to be made uh, without much popular consultation, without much institutional consultation. You know, they don't care about what the intelligence is actually saying in this movie or in the actual lead up to the Iraq war. They knew what they were going to do and there was absolutely nothing that was going to stop them. So all of this stuff is just a preamble to what a distant centralized authority has already decided it wants to do. And if you can watch that and understand what the stakes of this movie is, which is, you know, a war that's going to kill unthinkable numbers of people, displace millions, and is built on entirely fraudulent premises. If you can watch this and be a hack or stooge for kind of, you know, the mainstream political establishment, I mean, you're really, you're really missing the plot. A certain vinegar-faced manipulative cowbag is about to discover that she's out of a job. Fucking hang up, haven't you? Fucking hoity-toity hey, fucking... Hey, up with curse words, all right? Kiss my sweaty balls, you fat fuck. Now, when the movie ends, even some of the characters who seem like they're going to do the right thing, including the James Gandolfini character, you know, they ultimately get cold feet. Simon Foster, our uh, hapless British cabinet minister, our hapless minister for international affairs, uh, does try to resign from the government over the war, uh, but then he's summarily fired because Malcolm Tucker is able to use this thing with the Steve Coogan character and the wall, which I guess the sun or something is reported on, as, as a pretext for the prime minister to fire him or for Malcolm Tucker to fire him on behalf of the prime minister. It's clear that they haven't actually spoken. James Gandolfini gets cold feet. He says, you know, I was against the war. It's a bad idea, but now it's started. It would be irresponsible of me to resign. And I think this captures the way a lot of people who absolutely knew better and absolutely knew the Iraq war was a lie and that there were no weapons of mass destruction rationalized things to themselves. I think it also helped, uh, you know, one of the ways that bad political decisions happen is captured very well in this movie in that 
the modern state is, you know, made up of all and foreign affairs in particular made up of all these kind of committees where it's not really clear, like who's actually in the driver's seat, who's actually making decisions, who has a mandate to do what. So everybody can kind of tell themselves, even though they're clearly a cog in the machine that like, hey, I didn't really have anything to do with this. I'm not a political appointee. I'm actually exercising the will of the people on behalf of Democratic representatives or something like that. There was one very important exception to all of this in the lead up to the Iraq war. Robin Wood, who had been the labor minister for foreign affairs, loudly resigned from the government over the war and gave a passionate speech in the British House of Commons in which he basically said the whole thing was a fraud. I think that might be a good thing to go out on. I think it remains one of the best modern examples of ministerial independence and just of basic moral principle. You know, in the speech, Wood is very careful. He says all this stuff about how he Tony Blair is the most successful leader of the Labour Party in his lifetime, and he doesn't think that Iraq should be used as a pretext to replace him. You know, he says all that stuff, but he nevertheless calls out the whole war as a fraud. History has proven him right. And if certain other people like Gordon Brown and Jack Straw and their American equivalents had been willing to do something like this, the Iraq war probably never would have happened. I've heard it said that Iraq has not had months, but 12 years in which to complete disarmament. And our patience is exhausted. Yet it is over 30 years since Resolution 242 called on Israel to withdraw from the occupied territories. We do not express the same impatience with the persistent refusal of Israel to comply. I welcome the strong personal commitment the Prime Minister has given to Middle East peace. But Britain's positive role in the Middle East does not redress the strong sense of injustice throughout the Muslim world at what they see as one rule for the allies of the US and another rule for the rest. Nor is our credibility helped by the appearance that our partners in Washington are less interested in disarmament than they are in regime change in Iraq. And that explains why any evidence that inspections may be showing progress is greeted in Washington not with satisfaction but with consternation because it reduces the case for war. What has come to trouble me most over past weeks is the suspicion that if the hanging chads in Florida had gone the other way and Al Gore had been elected, we would not now be about to commit British troops. Mr. Speaker, the longer I have served in this place, the greater the respect I have for the good sense and the collective wisdom of the British people. On Iraq, I believe the prevailing mood of the British people is sound. They do not doubt that Saddam is a brutal dictator, but they are not persuaded he is a clear and present danger to Britain. They want the inspections to be given a chance, and they suspect that they're being pushed too quickly into conflict by a US administration with an agenda of its own. Above all, they are uneasy at Britain going out on a limb in a military adventure without a broader international coalition and against the hostility of many of our traditional allies. From the start of the present crisis, as leader of this House, I've insisted on the right of this place to vote on whether Britain should go to war. It has been a favourite theme of commentators that this House no longer occupies a central role in British politics. Nothing could better demonstrate that they are wrong than for this House to stop the commitment of troops 
in a war which has neither international agreement nor domestic support. I intend to join those tomorrow night who vote against military action now. It is for that reason, and that reason alone, and with a heavy heart, that I have resigned from the government. Yeah. Yeah.